0: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Big oil and gas firms have vast experience with complex, expensive cross-border infrastructure projects. That's just the kind of expertise the world needs as it transitions to renewables. In order to survive, oil majors need to put those skills to use. And winters in Mongolia are no walk in the park, but extreme winters that follow dry summers have catastrophic effects on livestock and on the herders who depend on them. Those climate conditions are getting more and more frequent. But first... The coronavirus continues to spread around the world, ...and has now been found in every mainland province in China. Infections have been found in at least 15 other countries. In all, there are already more cases than there were in the 2002 outbreak of the related SARS virus. And international responses are ramping up. This morning, Russia's Prime Minister said the country would be closing its border with China. Authorities in Australia and Britain have quarantined returning travelers. And British Airways and other airlines have cancelled flights altogether into and out of China. Today, the World Health Organization will meet to discuss whether the outbreak constitutes a global health emergency. In any case, it's certainly a national one.
1: So where I am in China, uh, we have had 38 more deaths announced today. Uh, So we're now at 170 dead. David Rennie
0: is our Beijing bureau chief and has been visiting villages on the edge of Hubei, the province which is the epicenter of the outbreak.
1: We have 7,700 uh, cases worldwide of which almost all of them are here in China, but they are also being found now in more than a dozen countries, mostly uh, people travelling from China while sick and turning up in those countries. Uh, we have evacuation flights going on we've had uh, the French are due to leave today the Americans left recently the Japanese there's a problem with a flight for British nationals uh, in the epicenter city of Wuhan, where the Chinese are playing very hardball as far as we can tell and if say, the wife of a British businessman also has a Chinese nationality, or their child has both nationalities, they're not letting them leave. Because China, in some ways, seems to feel humiliated by the idea of evacuating foreigners as if they can't be trusted to look after them.
0: And so the, the entire province of, of Hubei is essentially on, on lockdown. What what does that actually look like on the ground?
1: It's very strange. Uh, this is kind of the Chinese Christmas. It's still Lunar New Year. Uh, villages should be full of people back home from the cities to see their families. There should be kids everywhere because school is out. But it's basically a ghost town. As you start driving even two hours down away from the Hubei border, each village on the roads down has blocked the entrances with kind of piles of mud or concrete pipes. There are people guarding villages, telling people to stay out. When you get close to the border, there are police checkpoints. uh, There are medics in protection suits, masks and goggles, taking everyone's temperature. And that's a pretty tense moment because if you're running a fever for any reason at all, then you could be stuck in 2 weeks of quarantine in the nearest Chinese hospital.
0: And so, how are the people in those border areas dealing with it? How are they feeling about this this strange situation?
1: Well, although from the outside this kind of massive quarantine which has now basically trapped tens of millions of Chinese people in their own homes, uh, from the outside that looks draconian and slightly scary. Strangely, when you're on the ground, actually the idea that they can do something anything to keep themselves safe by shutting foreigners out of the village or keeping their kids locked up inside is almost a source of comfort. So one of the strangest places I went was to the very last village uh, before you get to the Hubei border. It's a pretty scruffy village, it's just off the last motorway exit. And they have about 200 people who have come home for Spring Festival from the city of Wuhan, where the outbreak is at its most intense. And so they have all been placed on lockdown at home Uh, There are signs in the streets saying that they may not go out, they can't see relatives, they can't visit friends. I met a man called Mr. Dung, he's a farmer, a wheat farmer. And uh, he has two little grandkids, and they were kind of peeking their heads out of the front door of his kind of scruffy farmhouse, but he would not let them on the street, even though they should be out playing because it's the biggest holiday of the year. And he said that... You know, of course, everyone is worried because from that place you can even walk into Hubei. So the idea that Hubei is just across the horizon has everyone very on edge. So uh,
0: it's it's only in an authoritarian country like like China where that kind of lockdown can be done. But I mean, by the the way you describe it, it, it sounds as if it, it's working that the public it has the the kind of caution that is that, that, that suits
1: this situation. So it's doing two things. Uh, it gives people comfort. So I spoke to uh, the party secretary of the village, uh, Weiji, right on the border. You know, he has the comfort of, of paperwork, which if you're a bureaucrat is, is what you want. So he has been quarantining everyone in the village who came from the city of Wuhan. They're having their temperatures taken twice a day. They've reported that back up to the next level of Government, uh, there's notices on every shop front telling people, don't go out, don't see strangers, uh, keep outsiders away. So that is a comfort. And, you know, there is a medical reason that if you stop people having lots of contact and you avoid big crowds, that can at least delay the peak of an epidemic, which gives, you know, the people developing vaccines somewhere in a laboratory far away a bit more time. But I think you will see outside experts saying this kind of really blunderbuss lock everyone in the whole area in their houses approach isn't how you basically stop these things that actually in richer western countries the approach is much more targeted you literally try and find the people who you know are infected and then you have these disease detectives who try and track everyone that they have met and that is how you stop a uh, an infection the problem with this really draconian approach is that you frighten people who who might not want to get put in a clinic uh, you flight, frighten them and they go into hiding and and one of the big problems is that they announced this shutdown of the city of Wuhan, a city of 11 million people. But then there was a bit of a delay. And so perhaps a million people just disappeared between the announcement and the lockdown. And that's not what you want.
0: And so all told, how how prepared would you say the, the, the Chinese authorities were for this relative to, for instance, the, the SARS outbreak in 2002?
1: So that's a very low bar because uh, back in 2002, 2003, when we had this other new virus uh, SARS, China spent several months just basically lying through its teeth and denying that this was a problem at all. And that led to really hundreds of avoidable deaths. It was a really disgraceful uh, time when you had doctors trying to tell the truth, getting punished, getting silenced. China clearly is trying to behave very differently this time. They've identified the virus. They are dealing with the international health organisations like the WHO. But there are still question marks about why it took several weeks Uh, for the authorities in the main epicenter city, Wuhan, to admit that there was human-to-human transmission. Uh, There was a real shortage of testing kits. So I think that the verdict is still out on whether China should be praised or criticized for its handling of this.
0: Well, either way, the the effect of essentially shutting down entire cities, provinces, you know, scaring people into their homes even far from the epicenter, that's got to have huge effects on, on the economy.
1: Certainly, the numbers are, you know, really, really dramatic. I mean, basically, I mean, this is, for example, you know, you can go by sector by sector, you know, all major tourist sites are closed at the busiest time of the year. Uh, This should be the biggest time of the year for box office takings in cinemas. 11,000 cinemas in China are closed. Should be a time for massive sporting events. I mean, it's like, you know, Thanksgiving or Christmas in America. That's this time of year, everything's closed. And so, I mean, you're seeing economic predictions that the next... Uh, GDP numbers could see 2% growth is one of the numbers we've seen thrown out there. Now, we haven't seen 2% growth uh, in China since the time of Chairman Mao. You know, they've been doing 6 7% growth uh, in recent times. So that'd be an extraordinary hit. Now, that all depends really in terms of does this knock, you know, the, the global economy for six, it really depends how long this outbreak lasts. So remember that outbreak of SARS in 2002, 2003, which killed nearly 800 people there was a very very sharp hit to the Chinese economy, but it bounced back because it didn't last uh, that long. And then there was a lot of delayed spending and and and, and consumption kicked back up. This time round, uh, the Chinese economy is a huge amount bigger. Uh, this time round, Chinese consumers, Chinese tourists uh, are a much more important uh, factor in global economic growth. So there's a lot of people who, if China just disappears from global economic growth this year, a lot of people in a lot of countries are going to take a hit.
0: David, thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you.
2: Many of us have
3: those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare,
0: It's earnings season, and a number of oil and gas companies are reporting their quarterly results this week. Once upon a time, big oil was a safe bet on the markets. Yet no big industry has performed worse for shareholders in the second half of the 2010s. And with a climate emergency looming, the 2020s are set to be even more disruptive.
2: We simply
1: have to stop digging and drilling and take advantage of the vast possibilities offered by renewable energy and nature-based solutions.
3: This is a do-or-die decade for the oil industry, particularly the big listed oil companies.
0: Henry Trix writes Schumpeter, our column on global business.
3: Because governments are raising their ambitions when it comes to climate targets. They're trying to get to net zero by 2050, and that means fewer carbon emissions, and that's where the oil industry really has to start changing its game.
0: Oil and gas companies are regarded by many as the villains of the climate crisis, but they can also be part of the solution.
3: If the world is to transition its energy system more towards cleaner energy, it's almost impossible to imagine it happening without some contribution from the enormous balance sheets of the oil and gas industry. They are amongst the richest companies in the global system. They have skills at developing projects in difficult places across borders with tremendous skill built up over 100 years or more of experience. So we kind of need them You mean in terms
0: of lending their international networks and experience in big infrastructure to a renewables push? Yes. Well, why wouldn't the renewables industry sort of grow up around them and displace them?
3: The renewables industry certainly is in transformation. There are a few companies that have become really big. But the trouble is that the scale of the challenge is so immense. People talk about the necessity for trillions of dollars of investment in renewables in order to be able to basically create an energy system that has the power and the impetus to be able to keep us moving with the growing demands for energy that there is. One shouldn't forget that renewable energy doesn't have anything like the efficiency of oil and gas. You need Many times more investment in renewable energy in order to get the same amount of energy generated.
0: But for now, at least, what are the oil majors focusing on?
3: If you take the listed oil companies, they are still betting very heavily on continued demand for oil and gas. So they're putting more than nine-tenths of their capital expenditure every year into fossil fuel projects and less than 10% into renewable energy. If you look even more broadly, including the kind of state-owned oil companies and that sort of thing, the level of investment in renewables is pitiful. It's like 1%. And to be fair to the oil companies, their shareholders are still asking them to continue those investments because they see that the returns on them are much higher than the returns on renewable investments.
0: And so if that's the level of investment that the oil agers are making now, how does that look on the grand plan for how to avert more climate crisis than we've already got?
3: Well, in order to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement, you would basically have to turn those ratios upside down. In fact, a calculation by UBS, the bank, earlier this month, suggested that you'll need about $1.2 trillion of investment every year in renewable energy over the next 30 years in order to reach those Paris goals That's more than twice the $500 billion a year that's being invested so far in oil and gas. So it's a huge ask for the industry, but it does seem pretty necessary if we are to hit those net zero targets.
0: I mean, turning those ratios upside down is for these companies turning their whole business upside down. What would be the trigger
3: to make that happen? For now, it seems almost unthinkable. There is no real appetite for radical change. But that said, it was interesting to see earlier this month, BlackRock, which is the world's biggest asset manager, announced that it was going to be taking climate considerations much more seriously in the way it deals with the companies that it invests in. So it's definitely on shareholders' radar that they need to put more pressure on the oil and gas companies to change, because at the end of the day, their own investments will amount to nothing if the oil and gas industry becomes worthless.
0: Because once climate change really starts to bite and and governments respond, oil and gas companies might find themselves under different tax regimes or regulations that make running their businesses very different, right?
3: Yes, that's right. I mean, one of the things that they are doing, it's interesting to see how they're focusing on projects that can be delivered within the time frame of about a decade because they're worried that by the end of the decade, there may precisely be that kind of backlash or clampdown. But also, their arguments for sustaining their oil and gas production are looking flakier, and that's basically because returns have not been as high as they've boasted. They've been a very poorly performing industry over the last five years or so, It's also the case that some of the particularly climate-concerned investors and banks are basically putting higher borrowing costs on the companies, especially if they're investing in particularly carbon-intensive projects. So that's pushing up the cost of capital, and that too lowers returns. And thirdly, there's just a sense that as they use their balance sheets and their skill in project management and whatever in the renewables industry, they'll be able to turn it into a much higher returning industry. They can build projects in difficult places that are big enough that the returns actually justify the amount of money that's invested in them. So there is eventually going to be a logic to investing in renewables that will be much more apparent to them. But it's a sort of a chicken and egg situation, really.
0: But your assertion is that that's what they do or they die.
3: If they don't do it, by the end of the 2020s, they could find themselves looking like a classic dinosaur industry. There are sort of interesting parallels. Ten years ago, the electricity companies in Europe, the utilities, they were on the same sort of cusp that the oil industry is today. And it was really tough for them for a few years. Some of the biggest companies like E.ON and RWE were forced to break themselves up. They lost billions and billions of dollars in market value as a result of the push towards renewable energy. But they've emerged much stronger by the end of the decade, and people definitely see them now as having a future. The oil and gas industry is somewhat in the same situation at the moment It looks like it's in denial, but it has to move or it will die. Henry, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason.
0: With an average of 250 days of sunshine each year, it's understandable that Mongolia is known as the land of blue sky. But the temperatures can also get bitingly cold during the winter months. Today, they're expecting lows of minus 27 Celsius. That's minus 17 Fahrenheit. Sometimes that number can drop to as low as minus 50 Celsius, bringing with it a weather catastrophe.
2: Every so often in Mongolia, you have a particularly severe winter, which is known as a zud, which is when incredibly cold temperatures follow a very dry summer. Rachel Dobbs reports for The Economist. And this is actually considered to be a natural disaster, and it's a natural disaster pretty much unique to Mongolia. It makes it very, very difficult for livestock to feed because they don't get enough grass during the summer, and then they're weakened, and then in the winter, all of the grass that they might have is buried under snow and ice, and the animals then literally starve or freeze to death. There have been some really catastrophic zuds. One in 2010 wiped out 11 million animals, which is 20% of the country's total livestock. So bad weather there could be pretty devastating.
0: And presumably also for for the humans that depend on them.
2: Yes. So zuds are very, very difficult for Mongolian herders, of which about 40% of the population are nomadic herders. And Every time there's Azud, herders have to give up their lifestyles and move to the cities to find work because they just do not have the livestock to be able to go on. The population of Ulaanbaatar, which is the capital, has grown 70% in the last two decades. And often the people moving in have moved in because it's just unsustainable for them to stay out on the step with the extreme weather events Of the herding families who do not move to the city and keep trying to live their nomadic lifestyles, a lot of them become dependent on aid to survive.
0: And so how often do do these, these, these crushing winters happen?
2: So it's a cyclical weather event that used to happen about once every decade, but they are becoming more and more frequent, according to both the Mongolian government and to charities that work with the people affected. There was one very bad one in 2010. In 2016, 2017, there was sort of consecutives, it's back to back. And now they are occurring every year in some parts of the country. And one of the reasons that people think that they're occurring more frequently is because of climate change. So droughts are becoming more severe. Sometimes it won't rain for nine, ten months at a time, which contributes to this sort of creeping desertification of the grasslands. And also climate changes in the weather pattern lead to more extreme swings in temperature and precipitation. The other factor is overgrazing, which kind of compounds the problem. Since Mongolia emerged from the Soviet Union in the 1990s and got rid of the Soviet agricultural system, livestock numbers have doubled. So there are suddenly a lot more animals grazing on the same land, which also makes it harder to make sure that, you know, in the summer months, animals are getting enough food. And the problem is that with every zud, the herders' abilities to cope with the next one is decreased because they have to sell off animals or take on debt to survive. And then they don't have the resources to see another one through if it comes along.
0: And so how's the winter season looking this year in Mongolia?
2: So right now, at the beginning of January, the meteorological agency announced that more than half of the country is at risk of a zud, And for the first time, the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies released funds according to this forecast, which they haven't previously done. Normally they just provide funding when ZUD actually hits. And that was according to sort of meteorological models and the data that they had. And they will use that to try and give herders some cash and some veterinary supplies and some food so that they actually have those measures in place before the ZUD happens.
0: And and how much do you think it'll help that they they kind of do this in advance?
2: So the amount of money that's been dispersed is $200,000 across about 1,000 herder families, which doesn't seem like very much, but that represents more than a month's salary. And if the zud is very bad, these relief agencies will typically provide more funding through campaigns. So I think having a little bit of a buffer at the beginning will actually make quite a big difference.
0: And what about the degree to which this is just fighting a rising tide? I mean, as, as climate change really continues to bite, will these traditional lifestyles be able to be maintained?
2: I mean, if these weather events become more and more severe until they're happening sort of every year, all the time, then yes, the lifestyles that have carried on for you know millennia will basically have to be abandoned. And probably one of the prime examples is nomadic herders in places like Mongolia.
0: Rachel, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason.